You can turn in your Bible to John 15. Today's sermon this month, or today's sermon and this month, we will take a little bit of a detour from Daniel before we get back into that, probably in February. I want to take January to talk about some pretty big thing, which is uh, the mission of the church, mission of this church, and about the values that drive the church's mission. And when we start talking about the, the uh, values of a church, and we have four of them, and the mission statement of a church, we're really talking about a church's identity, its values, who we are, and its activity, what we're trying to do. Uh, there's a story of a rabbi during the time of uh, Christ's life who uh, was so caught up in memorizing something from the Old Testament as he was walking uh, through Galilee that uh, he took a wrong turn into the evening and uh, maybe you've been there, you know, you're so caught up in something in your mind, you, you take a wrong turn in the car and uh, you don't know where you're at. Well, imagine back in the time of Jesus, some rabbi so caught up in his own thoughts and repeating the Torah to himself, he, he winds up on the outskirts of Galilee and it's, uh, he approaches into the evening the uh, fortress of a Roman garrison, one of the corner spots. And of course, the, the Roman soldier calls down to him uh, because he shouldn't be there. Who are you and uh, what are you doing here? And this rabbi, who in these times is known for his uh, wise retorts, says back to this Roman uh, soldier who asks him, who are you and what are you doing here? How much are they paying you to ask me that? And the Roman soldier is really caught off guard because uh, typically nobody responds with that question. How much are they paying you to say that? And so he obliges and tells him. And the rabbi says, I'll pay you double if you come down here and you stand outside my house and ask me that same question every morning when I wake up. Who are you and what are you doing here? And that's really what a church's mission and their values are about. That you do ask yourself the question as a church, as you should as an individual, particularly this time of year, new year, new you. You want to look at it that way. Who are you and what are you doing here? And to evaluate your life that way so that you can set a course. And we call those courses that we set around this time of year resolutions, goals, aims. We were trying to explain that to our kids yesterday. You know, it's, it's a target to aim at so that you hit it. Because if you aim at nothing, you hit that every time. Now, when we talk about a church's vision that relates to their values, the vision isn't the mission. The vision is when you can say, okay, if this, is, if this is the mission we're on, if we know this is what we are to do and we know who we are, the vision for any church is how are we going to get there? If we know who we are, we're not wondering about our identity as a church, as you aren't, hopefully this morning, in Christ, wondering about your identity as a Christian. You know who you are. And uh, you know what you want to be about. So there is a name, there is a target. The vision you have for your life as an individual believer or as this church is what you're going to try to do to get there. 
So it's not that complicated to talk about a church's vision. It's certainly not mystical. You know, the vision for a church is nothing more than knowing what your mission and values are and saying, how are we going to get there? Contrary to some belief, the vision for a church isn't the exclusive idea or dream of yours truly. As in, Adam goes away, you know, locks himself up the last week of the year and says, Lord, give me a vision for this church. It's not what it is. I remember one mentor of mine saying, the moment a pastor starts talking like that, grab your wallet. That's right. That's what he's coming for. If the, if the vision for a church is the exclusive property, not just of said one individual, but any group of individuals. If somebody says, I've, I've, God's given me a vision for this church, and let me tell you about it. Yellow flag should go up. If on the back end of that there isn't, so let's open up the word of God and let me show you. Because it isn't the exclusive property of any one individual. It's, it's being able to see in God's word what a church is to be, stating it clearly, and then having a plan to accomplish that. That's what a vision for a church is. Being able to say, what's the church's identity from the word of God? Have we pulled out the principles that really define the foundational things we are to be about? Because there's a lot of things a church can be about. Go on any church's website and read their mission statement or values or whatever you want to call it. There's a lot of difference there. And it's good to have that. It's good to have a church who can state who they are and what they want to do and then say, here's the vision to get there. And, it, and it maybe in your mind, you've heard uh, sometime a sermon about a church's vision. Go back to a certain proverb, Proverb 29, 18. When there is no vision, the people are unrestrained. Do you feel unrestrained because I haven't preached a vision sermon here in a while? You don't look that way. The old KJV says, when there is no vision, the people perish. And so sometimes a preacher will use that text to justify, and I don't want you to perish. I don't want us to, to go into obscurity, so here's my vision. Now, what they sometimes leave out is the second part of Proverbs 29, 19, because it is a good verse to think about. It says, when there is no vision, the people are unrestrained, but happy is he who keeps the law. Funny how that part gets left off. There's the real objective side of a church's vision, isn't it? And remember the context of the Proverbs, King Solomon. He can clearly understand that if he does not have the word of God to give to his people, he has no vision for them. If there is no word for the people of God, and you, you see this throughout the kings, especially after Solomon, Leader after leader came, and as they departed from the word of God, what happened to the people? They perished. They were unrestrained. What happens when God would send them a prophet by God's grace? The king would listen and respond and open up the word of God. The people are brought to repentance. And, and, and they realign themselves with God's word and thereby God's will. So there is a lot to be said about Proverbs 29, 18. People can be unrestrained and perished without a vision, as in a, a word from God delivered by a preacher, by a prophet, 
a leader, somebody standing in front and opening the word and saying, this is the direction we need to go in. Otherwise, you devolve into what Judges shows us what? Everyone doing what's right in their own eyes. So vision is necessary, but it's not a person's individual vision. It's the one that we find in the word of God, clearly stated and told to the people, and then the people saying, yes, that is what we're to be about. So this, this January, I'd like to spend some time talking about a vision for HBC as it relates clearly to our values, to go through them and say, are we doing through these values what our mission statement says we're about, which is right there on our website, as soon as you land on it, you know, the, um, the digital front door of our church. And people look for a church and they, they find your website. And we wanted to put right there, smack dab on our website when you land on it, making disciples of Jesus Christ to the glory of God. A very simple mission statement. And then developing of values around that. So that we know what we're aiming at and going in that direction. And this month, uh, we will go to some different texts to talk about our four values. A, a Christ-exalting church, a word-centered church, a disciple-making church, and a mission-driven church to accomplish the one mission we have, which is making G disciples of Jesus for the glory of God. But I wanted to start us in John 15, and I know uh, that's me playing favorites because it's a favorite passage of mine, and some of you know that. And I just want to read to you. A few verses from verses 5 to 11 to get our thoughts going this morning towards uh, what, what are some of the verses that do help us align ourselves with the mission that we're on, making disciples of Jesus Christ to the glory of God. And I don't know of a better place to start and to start a new year with than my personal favorite. No, I mean, I guess now here I am, the, the visionary, but taking you back to where we were three years ago, right? Abide. Abide. Because we want to bear fruit. And when you bear fruit, you glorify God. It's not very complicated, is it? Hard, challenging, but it's simple. And isn't that like the Lord to give us something simple that will challenge you to your dying day? So follow along with me as I read John 15, 5 through 8. Jesus in the upper room speaking to his disciples on the night of his betrayal. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples. This is God's word to us. May he bless the preaching and hearing of it today. Abiding in Jesus Christ is everything to the Christian. It's everything to us. Why is it everything to us? Because what he said in verse 5, apart from abiding, we can't do anything. We can do nothing, or as I was hanging with one of my favorites, Dwight Stone, this past week, and telling him what I was going to preach, and said, because Dwight, apart from, apart from Christ, we can do nothing, and he looks at me and goes, absolutely nothing. I said, sorry, I didn't add the qualifier, absolutely nothing. What a precious brother.
So the new year comes. And you have all these goals you want to reach for this year. Good things. I was curious to see what, um, what people aim at and hopefully hit, but most often miss uh, the, the statistic. And they, you know, statistics, what are they? They're malleable, depending on who you ask. And the one statistic that I think gets thrown around for making realistic goals is that 80% of people stop doing their resolutions within the first month or something like that. Because they're not achievable, quantifiable, they aim too high. Um, whatever it might be, but I was looking, and uh, in 2022, the top three goals reported by all people would be health, just generally speaking, health, um, which isn't a very clear goal, is it? Uh, happiness, another very clear goal. Uh, but then the last one is tangible, weight. They want to focus on their health, their happiness, and their weight. And um, here's the thing. Uh, any of those things, good, good things, not against them. But you can't accomplish those apart from Jesus. Unsaved people do it all the time. And I know, well, they can't take another breath apart from the sovereign command of God, of course. It's, that's flying over all this. But people do in their own strength, apart from abiding in Jesus, people that aren't in Christ, set goals in the new year for their health, happiness, and weight, and they might accomplish them. So what is Jesus saying here when he says, apart from me, you can do nothing? He's talking about what's, what's meaningful, what's going to last. Can you take those same resolutions and goals and I, I, dreams and aims for this year and say, can I, can I accomplish those in Christ? As in, is there a greater reason for them? I mean, physical health is a good thing. Discipline of the body, Paul says, has some value, 1 Timothy 4.8. But he says of greater value is training for godliness. So how do you take that goal you have for the new year? We were talking about him last night as a family. I mean, I was trying to cast a vision for 2023 with Shannon reminded me by just looking at me. A 10, an 8, and a 7-year-old. So we talked about goals for the new year. And um, I talked about one, you know, the three, two, one idea. Don't eat three hours before you go to sleep. Don't drink anything two hours before you go to sleep. And don't be on your phone. And so, you know, screen time, one hour. Three, two, one. Easy to remember. Because I read some other pastor turning 50 saying, I want to really, I've used this the last year and it helped me. And I said, that's pretty good. And then um, that was around seven. Around nine, we're playing games to try to bide our time. And uh, they're like, Dad, can we get some ginger ale and bust out the Cheetos? And I was like, yeah, for sure. <laughs> it wasn't 2023 yet. <laughs> but you can accomplish, apart from Christ, something that has some value. Paul would say some goal you have. But the greater goal is godliness, and that's what matters most. And, um, and I just pray that this morning as we look... And just spend some time meditating more than in, in expositing John 15, and we'll go a few other places. That the meditation this morning reminds us that the highest aim of our lives individually and as a church is there in John 15, 8. This is the goal of our life. First point today. The goal of our life is this. That God be glorified 
in your life. My Father is glorified by this. How are you going to do it? It's very important we know the scriptures that spell out very directly when it says, hey, you want to glorify God, which is, as we explained last night to our kids, that's the center of the target. We bought them a bow and arrow for Christmas. Grandma wasn't pleased. But I said, guys, if you're going to aim at something, the center of the target in every believer's life is the glory of God. So I should underline and circle and draw arrows pointing to verse 8 when Jesus, the Son of God, says, here's how God is glorified. Right? That would seem to be an important verse to know. My Father's glorified by this. This is the goal of our lives, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. And there's our mission statement right there on the front page of our website. We want to make disciples of Jesus Christ to the glory of God, because Jesus said we should. Cool with that. Simple, like I said, but a lot goes into it. And just put it at the outset. So if you do not abide, because abiding is what leads to the bearing of fruit. If you do abide, verse 5, he who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. So there's how you do it. If you want a big idea, glorify God. How do you glorify God? By bearing much fruit. How do you bear much fruit? By abiding in him. So the question becomes, how do I abide this year? And abide is just the simple idea of staying close, remaining with, dwelling with, sticking with, nearby, close as you could be to Jesus this year. In a real way, a relationship with him. Part of it you see in verse 7. How do you do that? You abide in him. My word abides in you. There's a good launching off point for a Bible reading plan. You want to abide in him. You want his word to abide in you. You need to know his word. His word needs to be dwelling in you richly. And that's, that's where all the power comes from. Just like you know how a tree works, all the fruit that's going to be born on the branch comes from the sap coming up through the main trunk of the tree, the vine, down into the soil, Psalm 1 language, right? Those roots go deep, they find the water. Those roots don't find water, it dries up, kaput. No fruit, no tree. And he tells you right there, that's, that's, that's how you're going to do it. And you're going to glorify God doing it. The goal of our lives, abiding so that we can bear fruit so that God can be glorified. And, and this is summary language Jesus is teaching here. He's, he's teaching about all of our lives. Abiding in him isn't just our salvation, meaning that we, we have been saved. We come to a saving faith in Christ. It's staying with them. It's, as the Bible word is used, uh, growing in Christ. Your sanctification, your maturation, all the way up to the glorification of the believer at the end. We will be abiding in Jesus Christ for all eternity. It, it doesn't stop then. And in fact, it's the closest we'll ever be to Jesus in eternity in our glorified state. So our abiding will be the most fruit-bearing then. Why? Because we'll be with him. We'll see him as he is. There'll be no departing and moving on from that. This is the root of the Christian life. It's in Jesus Christ, abiding in him, bearing fruit for him. And, and we use words... And I've introduced this, and I'll bring it back just so it's in your mind. This is talking about, when we talk about abiding, your union with Christ as a branch is united to a vine, a trunk of a tree. There's a union there. It actually is connected. And that's when you become a Christian. You are united to Christ. Better than to say, are you a Christian? And we've said this before, asking a person, are you in Christ? 
Because sometimes when you ask, are you a Christian, they just immediately associate that with some, some list of yes and no questions. Is he the son of God? Yes. Is he the son of man? Yes. Is he the Messiah? Yes. But no relational idea, right? So saying you're in Christ puts it all together. I, I am in him. That's your union with Christ. And it starts at the point in which God brings salvation into your life when you're born again. But then from that point on is your, wonderful word, communion with Christ. There's a union, I've been united to him, and then there's a communion. And what's that word communion? It's a relational word. It's an ongoing word. And to help us get our minds and hearts wrapped around it, I've tried to use the illustration here before of a marriage. You have a marital union that has a place and a date and a formal arrangement. Vows are exchanged. But then the rest of that marriage It ebbs and flows, and there's highs and lows built on the communion you enjoy with your spouse. And if you ask, hey, how's your marriage doing? And somebody responds, it's great. May 13, 2011 was a banner day. And so he's like, Adam, it's, it's, do the math, Adam. 11 years later. I know it was a great day. Shannon picked the cake. She loved it. Lemon cake with coconut. I look dapper. How's your marriage? Oh, it stinks, actually. Shannon and I haven't talked for two months. But that was a great day. Oh, so you're just living off of this idea of union with no concern with the communion. You talk to her, she talks to you. Why should I? There's union. That's not a a relationship. There's no communion there. Likewise with the Lord. Abiding. You just go, oh, how's your relationship with God? Great. Check it out. Front of my Bible. Um, Got saved when I was 10. Somebody wrote it in here. So if I ever doubted, I would just go back to that date. When's the last time you read it? I have no idea. How's your relationship with God? What's good? Remember, I gave you the date. No. How is it? It's union and communion. It's both and when you're talking about abiding present day, right now. How is your relationship with the Lord? You answer that question by what you did today and yesterday and what your aim is to use your time with today. That's the communion side. And God is glorified as you prove to be his disciple by bearing the fruit of a true Christian. And bearing the fruit of a true Christian is all over the New Testament. It starts, and I'm not, you know, jokey, jokey. I know sometimes that's me. But talking about our root and fruit is seed form in the Gospels with Jesus. And then it's all over Paul's letters. But Jesus plants the seeds of this idea of fruit bearing being driven into the mind from the first time he, he, he tells Pharisees who, who just wanted to do the external stuff and not really be changed. Matthew 3, verse 7, talk about a secret sensitive message. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, right? Come on down, everybody, spontaneous baptisms today, right? Just jump in. No questions asked. When he sees Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he says to them, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That was their problem. There was no repentance. And how did he know it? Because there was no bearing fruit. They weren't changed men. 
They were high and holy men, the scribes and Pharisees we talked about last week in Matthew 2. They had the information on the Messiah. And what did they do with it? Said, it's good for you wise men from Babylon, but we're not interested in going to worship that little babe in a manger. And they haven't changed, and it's 30 years later. They're just fakes. But bearing fruit comes at the beginning of your Christian life in repentance, seeing your need to be forgiven, and your life changing, transforming. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away, the new things have come. So that's, that's from the beginning. Bearing fruit as a believer is right from the start, the fruit of your repentance. The turning away, saying that, that's not me. I, and I, I have no hope in myself to change. I need God to change me. I need Christ. But then Jesus goes on. Just turn one chapter over in Matthew to Matthew 4, 8. I'm sorry. Bad. Earlier mistake. Mark 4, 8. The same thing is in Matthew 13. It's the parable of the four soils. Bearing fruit is not just the start of your faith. It's what continues on in your faith summarized in the parable of the four soils in Mark 4.8, where it says other seeds fell into the good soil, and as they grew up and increased, they yielded a crop and produced 30, 60, and 100-fold. Good fruit. And like John 15 says, much fruit, 30, 60, and 100-fold. That would be out of out of the minds of the hearers of Jesus in his time. No, no, you don't get a crop like that. An eight to tenfold crop would have been a good return on investment for a farmer in the time of Jesus. And he's saying 30, 60, and 100 fold. So bearing fruit is in your lives all along. It doesn't go dormant. And then back to Matthew 7, 16 to 22, all the way to the end of your life. It's, it's not just at the beginning and it's not just throughout. It's at the end in the judgment Every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. You'll be judged by your fruit of doing God's will. You won't fool God in the judgment. The true Christ root that bears Christ's fruit in your life will be seen by God at the end, and he will not be fooled by fake fruit. Grandma Ashoff, growing up, had a bowl of fake fruit, and that fooled me growing up as a five-year-old. I would go to her house, and amidst the, I mean, it was a whole table of doilies, Doilies on doilies, hand-stitched. And then this bowl of wax fruit that I would pick up and... That's what Jesus is saying in Matthew 7. There's some people that he's going to pick it up and go, it ain't the real thing. It's fake. Because it was never the real thing from the beginning. That same Pharisee, Sadducee, who has that fake religious fruit, was the same one at the beginning who didn't bear fruit in keeping with repentance. They just wanted to come for the show of it. Do something external to try to show everybody, oh, oh, we need to be baptized? Yeah, we'll do it. Yeah, that shows we're a good God-fearing Jew. He says, no, bear fruit 
Change, change your whole perspective of trusting in your own outward, external works, righteousness, and turn from that and come to me, the Savior, who's not impressed by any of that fake fruit. So the, the goal of our lives is to actually have, back to John 15, an abiding, fruit-bearing relationship with Christ. So I just would ask you this morning, are you in Christ No reason to set any resolution for the new year if you can't answer this question. Are you in Christ? Are you born again? Have you trusted in Jesus Christ in his righteousness alone? His perfect life alone? His perfect keeping of the law of God alone? And not just his perfect life that you need credited, imputed, given to you by faith. But you need his sacrificial death. You need his substitutionary work on the cross as if you at the end of your life would deserve to be crucified for your sins. No, Jesus came in time and hung on a cross canceling the debt that you owed God. So you're forgiven in Christ. And then you are given his righteousness And he sees you, God does, as he sees his own son. And that's hard for us to grasp because when we sin, we are well aware of our own weakness and failures. And to say, really, Father, by faith, God in heaven who's holy, you can actually, because your son lived the life I couldn't, died the death I deserved, and rose again, you see me as you see him. Unbelievable, but that's the good news of the gospel. So my question is, are you in Christ today? Have you responded in faith to Jesus Christ's offer of forgiveness of sin? He says in John 3, 15, whoever believes in me will have eternal life in me. See, that's the seed that's planted back in the gospels. In me, you have eternal life. Just, just like then in the rest of the New Testament, Paul is all about being in Christ before he's about anything else. It's about being in Christ. In him, you have eternal life. So this morning, you can't follow Jesus. You can't obey Jesus. You can't go out and do great things for Jesus apart from being in him. Abiding before there is any fruit bearing. That's the goal of our lives. And when that's true and we're in the vine, then we can talk about the goal of our church today. The goal of our church, the mission of our church, is we're not just satisfied to be here and be in Christ and that's it, as if the Christian life is then to be accomplished on our own. And to say, oh, you know, sweet, I made it in. Now I'm just going to wait for the by and by. By myself? No. The goal is to make more disciples. To bear much fruit of disciple making. And that's the mission of our church together. And this isn't hard to understand. God is glorified when there are more followers of him bearing more fruit. Now he is not up there in heaven, the father. um, in, In some state of discontent. Because he's perfect. He has a perfect satisfaction in the love between the Father and the Son in the Spirit, believer. 
But for him to get more glory, wonderful, great. But he's, he's, he's not up there just, oh, woe is me. There aren't more people glorifying me. It's just, it's just abundance. The, the more fruit bears there are, the more glory goes to God. And it's really, the, the wonderful thing is, it's the purpose for which he saves us, is to bring him glory. He does the work. And so our mission statement to make more disciples of Jesus to the glory of God, the goal of our church, is just because that's what he's created us for, to stay here, not to immediately go. And I remember that was always on my mind as a teenager. You know, God saved me, and if heaven is so great and wonderful, why doesn't he just zap me up? One, I think it'd be cool to be zapped up. What's the point of me sticking around? Well, it wasn't until being shown passages like Matthew 28 and, and commands of Jesus that, you know, as those disciples are standing around and they're going to think we're just going to wait for, for the kingdom to come. And he says, no, Matthew 28, 19, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, so you go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and I'm with you to the end of the age. That's what we're trying to do as a church, is just fulfill that. That's it. And if we don't have that in front of our sights in the new year, to be a Christ-exalting church who wants more people to exalt Jesus Christ, then what, what are we trying to do if we're failing at that? If we take our eyes off of Matthew 28, 19 and 20, what's the point? What's the point? Just be the social club? I mean, you're good people. I like hanging out with you. But man, if we're not moving the mission forward, or as we've put on the new sign out front today to remind us as we drive out of here today. Colossians 1.28. What are we trying to do here every week, every day of our lives? Colossians 1.28. How are we a Christ-exalting church that moves the mission forward? Here it is in Colossians 1.28. We proclaim Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom to present every man complete in Christ. That's, that's what drives a Christ-exalting mission forward. And notice in verse 29 of Colossians 1, for this purpose I labor, I strive according to his power which mightily works in me. We're a church that exists to exalt Christ and, and we are under no uh, illusion that it's going to happen by us just sitting back and doing nothing. It's going to happen by the mighty striving according to his power which works in us. Because back in John 15, it's very clear is he repeats himself multiple times. It's not just bearing fruit. John 15, 2, he, he prunes us to bear more fruit. So that's one way God can kind of get you going this year. He might have to prune you. And pruning's painful. I'm sure if you asked a plant, they'd say, ouch, it is painful to be cut. And so it is in the life of a believer. He brings trials in your life. He, he ordains them sovereignly. He designs them perfectly to prune you in order to perfect you, not to punish you. If you are a Christian, look at John 15, 3. You're already clean because of the word. God's pruning of you, believer, is not his punishment of you. Do you get that? It's his love for you. He wants to shape you. He wants to take those, those wild, you know how pruning works, or maybe you don't. 
But if, if you just let all the little tendrils on a vine, and this is vine language in Jesus' time of a grapevine, you just let all those little tendrils grow out and go their own ways, it's taking the main power away from the main vine to really get a good crop of grapes. Rather than all that juice and nourishment, go to a bunch of other ones and you get like average ones. Isn't that sensible to your Christian life? Think of all the little byways and tendrils that grow out of your life when you're not what focused on the one thing, bringing glory to God with your life, and you get off on this path and that path, and God has to take, nope, that one, that was just wasting your time and energy and effort. I want to get you back over here, so I'm going to design this trial, this pruning to cut you. But it's to cleanse you. It's to purify you. So that this main vine gets all the sap and you're all the more fruitful when you step back and go, oh, I see why he went cut, cut, cut. Because look at the end of that, the fruit that it's been produced. That's what pruning does for the believer. It's painful, but he loves you and he's not punishing you. You got to get that out of your head, believer. It's discipline, it's chastisement, but it ain't punishment. He loves you and he cuts you in order to cleanse you. So you bear fruit for him. More fruit. That's verse 2. But look what he wants also. Verse 5. He who abides in me and I abide in him bears much fruit. He wants much fruit in your life. Verse 8. My father's glorified by this. You bear much fruit. Do you get the point? Believer this day. He wants your 2023 to bear much fruit. Now at this point in the sermon, I can give you a bunch of things to do. But that's not where the power is going to come from. Power is going to come from prayer. Because that's how you're vitally connected to him. His word abides in you. And that's the word of God. But, but when, when you pray, and when you pray according to the power that you know he has available to you, you see the work done because you're asking him to do it. And I want to take you to a prayer for the new year, for our church, the goal of our prayers, because it's about God's power and that power he has then is given to us. So let's end today in Ephesians 3, 14 to 21. Unlike not giving you a list of things to do today, I just want to turn your heart's attention to a most powerful prayer in the New Testament. And I would say it is the most powerful prayer. And I'm playing my favorites today. John 15, Ephesians, particularly this prayer. Because where this prayer is situated in the Apostle Paul's writing to this church at Ephesus is not by accident. And some of you know something about the book of Ephesians, some of you might not. In summary, it, it unfolds symmetrically, perfectly balanced, where you have Ephesians chapters 1, 2, and 3 describing to you your identity. We talked about that at the beginning. Who am I? Read Ephesians 1 to 3. Repeats in Christ 39 times. In him, in Christ, in Jesus. That's who you are. You don't need to describe yourself in any terms other than I'm in Christ for your life to have meaning and purpose. But I'm in, I, I work this job, I do this thing, I know these people, I have these kids, I'm this influencer. Woo! I'm in Christ. That defines you. And that's what Ephesians 1-3 to does for the believer. It tells you your identity. And then Ephesians 4 through 6 
breaks down your activity. And you just go through Ephesians 4 to 6 and you look at a word. uh, All the commands come then. And in particular, the, the emphasis on walking, which is this is what you do every day. Ephesians 4.1, you're walking in a manner worthy of your calling. Ephesians 4.17, you're to walk holy, not like the Gentiles. Ephesians 5.2, you're to walk in love. Ephesians uh, 5.8, you're to walk in light. Ephesians 5.15, you're to walk in wisdom. And and so Ephesians is just this wonderful book because it, it tells us you need to know your identity in order to have your activity. But... What's the power behind becoming who I believe myself to be? Becoming in practice all that I am in potentiality. Isn't that the reason you make a resolution on a natural human level? There's something you examine in your life and you say, I'm just not who I want to be yet. I don't care how old you are. There's, there's something I feel like I can still accomplish. Uh, I, whatever, I got to get my life together. You, you believe something about yourself and you want to become who you believe yourself to be. Well, that's Ephesians, who you are and then what you should do. But what's the power that's going to plug it in and make the thing go? It's the prayer that Paul puts in 14 to 21 because it's about a prayer of power, about spiritual enablement. It's a wonderful prayer. And I don't want to tell you too much about it because I want you to study it this week. And I want to challenge you to memorize it this year and to pray. I want to ask you. My challenge is to memorize it. But for the sake of our church to be all that it can be, I want to ask you to pray this prayer every Saturday night. Because this is where the power is. What's so powerful about it? Well, verses 14 and 15, Paul says, I'm just, this is a prayer for the church. This is a prayer for God's family. That he would give you, verse 16, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. That's the power. What's that presupposing? It's presupposing that we don't have the power we need as believers and it ain't through some new workout I'm going to jump into in the new year. All apologies, CrossFit. Where's your greatest weakness this year? Right in verse 16, your inner man, your inner woman, your, your inner being. That's where your weakness is. I know we have weaknesses on the outside where Paul says decaying every day in 2 Corinthians 4, the outer man, the outer woman. I've never been more wasted away than I am today at 42. Those good days are behind me. I could still try to be the best 42-year-old I could be for the sake of throwing my kids up in the air and catching them safely. But it's the inner man that needs power. And and where's that power going to come from? I want to show you two Christ-exalting ways that you will be empowered through this prayer. First, verse 17, when Christ dwells in your hearts through faith and you then being rooted and grounded in his love can comprehend the love he has for you. Christ wants to dwell in fullness in your heart through faith. That's the first way Paul's saying you're going to be empowered for service this year. You're going to bear fruit in verse 17 and 18 when you get 
that he dwells in you, in your heart, and, and how he, what he wants to move out. Picture your heart, Christ's home, and he's pushing the furniture out, and he's bringing in new stuff, and all of it is his love. He's saying, if you're going to be strengthened this year to be the best you can be, you need to know all that I am for you. I love you. I want you to comprehend the, the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of my love for you. And that's what's going to, what are those two words in verse 17? Root you, vitality, ground you, stability. Those are the two words. I could give you a sermon on them in Greek. But they're words for horticulture and architecture, rooted and grounded, vitality and stability. Do you want that in 2023? I hope you do. I hope you don't want to dry up or topple over. No vitality, no stability. But you're not going to do it on your own. You're going to do it knowing the love of God for you in Christ this year. The gospel, imagine that. Getting back to God's love for you in every dimension. That's what he says is going to, that word for dwell is make it his home in your heart. When Christ is home in your heart, fundamentally, and in its fullness, is you knowing how much he loves you, believer. And it starts with the gospel. It doesn't end with the gospel. I mean, his love for you is, is in a thousand ways. But it is fundamentally that he gave his life for me. And forever I'm indebted to him. So he wants to dwell in your heart through faith, and that's the dwell, abide. He, he just he wants more space in your heart, but he doesn't just want that. That's the first thing. He wants to have all of you dwelling in your heart through faith, abiding. But then he wants to fill all of you with what? Verse 19, knowing the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. Try to figure that one out. Know something that surpasses your knowledge. It means you'll never get to the end of it, Right? To know something that surpasses your knowledge means there's more of me to know of the love of Christ, but I'll never get to the end of it. You think you did? You don't know what you're talking about. And it's not just know, know it, experience it. There's always more. What we'd be signing up for under or oversell, under deliver, right? If we could get to the end of the love of Christ for us. No, so he says, to know this love of Christ, it surpasses knowledge. Why does he want to fill you with the height, breadth, length, and depth of the love of God? So you would be filled up with all the fullness of God. Does that sound like a fruit-bearing year? To, to, he's praying this, that you, this could be you this year. you got to believe it. Or don't you? Do you think I just, I'm wound up because i got four hours of sleep? You either believe this in faith or you don't, brother and sister. Take God at his word. This is Paul's prayer. This is the ignition. Ephesians 1 through 3 is that new car your spouse bought you for Christmas. Just like the commercials, right? It's sports car was out in your driveway with the big red bow. And then they, they say, hey, it's going to be a nice day this week. Go drive it up on the Blue Ridge Parkway. It ain't going anywhere without what? The key. This is the key. Ephesians 1 to 3 is the car. Ephesians 4 to 6 is you driving that thing to the wheels fall off. But if you don't have this prayer for power in your inner person, no key, no ignition switch, 
no going anywhere. And when you don't pray like this and believe this is what you need, you might as well take that sports car and start pushing it. Oh, what a good ride. I got this sports car on the Blue Ridge Parkway. Man, I'm, I'm cooking it 0.001 miles per hour. That's how most people will live their Christian life when you don't see that the power is in a prayer. I'm going to push the car. How about use the key? That's what Paul's prayer is right here. And it's, it's not complicated. It's being blown away and exalting Christ for his love for you. He wants to empty you in order to fill you. Empty the house in order to fill the house, right? That's, that's the picture here. He wants to empty the house in 16 and 17. Move all the old stuff out. Renovate the whole thing in order to fill it with himself. Every room of the house of your life. He wants to go into and fill it with the fullness of God. And how do you get there knowing the love of God in Christ? And when you do that, then I think, go in full circle, you're back in John 15, 8. You're living a life that bears much fruit. And you're proving to be a disciple of Jesus. And God is glorified in it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for the fullness that it promises us. There's nothing like knowing that we have all the spiritual blessings in the heavenlies in Christ. We have everything we need for life and godliness. There's nothing like knowing that, but then there would be nothing so tragic as to do nothing with it. So our prayer is here that you would strengthen us in the inner man and the inner woman to become in practice what we are in position. And that praying this for this year and committing it to memory. And as Psalm 1 said, meditating on it day and night would bring us back in our darkest days to the highest heights of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you love us. So we thank you for this word. Use it for your glory today. Amen.